Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. As we return to our second golden age of rock series, we find ourselves in the pivotal year of 1968, right before the 1960s comes crashing to an end. While the socio-cultural and political story of this year is revolution and unrest, the musical story of this year is dichotomy. On one side, Bands and artists are going bigger, heavier, more psychedelic, and weirder. Both Jimi Hendrix and Cream release titanic, heavy-ass double albums. The Velvet Underground take noise rock to the extreme and further germinate the seed of punk rock that they and The Who planted a few years ago. The Pretty Things go full-on art rock by putting out a densely layered concept album that predicts both heavy metal and prog rock. And the Grateful Dead release their most whacked-out record ever, while the Beatles and Frank Zappa just get weirder. On the other side, other bands and artists are going smaller, more minimalist, and taking rock music back to its roots. The Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Birds, and the band find refuge and inspiration in music from the past, drawing on different kinds of cultural heritage to create new kinds of roots-based rock. Things start to go away from flower power at this point, and new avenues of expression for rock music are still being created. The seemingly unending list of brilliant albums from this year is a testament to that. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and welcome to the second golden age of rock, 1968. 1968 was a year of brutality, chaos, and loss, what with the political riots and the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., or Robert F. Kennedy, I wish it was Jr., uh, (laughs) RFK, and uh, also the escalation of the Vietnam War. But the tumult was decidedly low in the musical world, where we were blessed with welcome throwbacks to the American and British vernaculars on the one hand, and towering monuments to indulgence and self-indulgence on the other. As we get going with what's already becoming a year of brutality in its own right here in 2024, now is a great time to revisit 1968. Now, ain't it, Arturo? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there's some bad shit going on in the world right now. So I'm okay with going back to the comparatively not so bad <laughs> unless you're in Vietnam <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know perils of 1968 but really i mean this podcast is all about the music and we're talking about the music and uh there's some damn good fucking great music that came out this year 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a really kind of a stunning year. Uh, you know, I mean, there was a whole string of them. That's why we're doing the second Golden Age series. There's, you know, it's yeah. like every year has its extraordinary, uh, extraordinary highlights. And, and we're covering uh, those in this episode. I mean, and this album is really just this, this, uh, we're, we're talking about albums primarily and yeah. almost exclusively. It's just like a, a, just a whole series of just great all time records. Like, like no joke, like, like, what do you figure at least five of the 50 greatest records ever made probably are, uh, yeah. are, are out, are out this year. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a chunk. So, well, now it's time to, uh, enter a realm where we know that great rock and roll music predominates. And, uh, I'm assuming, you know, where, where we're heading here, Arturo. Oh, wow. Oh, 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 oh. Martians are coming down to the parallel universe. Apparently. Wow. Neato, dude. Neato. So here we are over in the parallel universe where rock is still the predominant uh, musical art form that's on the billboards and in the arenas and on the stages of the stadiums. And it's not just a Taylor Swift world, but uh, guys with guitars and uh, ladies with guitars and uh, two turntables and a microphone uh, are up there as well. It's uh, it's a great place for great music, and uh, that's what this segment is really about. It's where Arturo and I uh, examine new and new-ish records. Uh, I say new-ish because there is a parallel vault over here in the parallel universe, Ooh. and once in a while we get to we get to pull out uh, a, a nugget from our uh, parallel vaults, uh, as in albums uh, released within the last decade. And we're actually doing that in this episode, uh, but not at first. Arturo, what uh, brand new record are you covering uh, this week from an artist in the parallel universe? It's the new one by Slater Kinney called oh. Little, Little Rope. Now, from 1995 through 2005, the band Slater Kinney raised the bar for politically charged punk and indie rock. They emerged from the feminist riot girl, quote unquote, scene in Olympia, Washington, with a rarity in the increasingly sterile and male punk rock world, a bold, original, highly musical style that incorporated innovative guitar work, complex rhythms, new wave pop, psychedelic rock, progressive rock, and lyrics that contained righteous political fury, scathing social commentary, and a, and a defiantly countercultural stance. It is not an exaggeration to say that Slater-Kinney during this period were the female counterpoint to The Clash. Yep. And the seven-album run they had during this period is a testament to the fact that Commercial success isn't and should not be the only barometer by which a band's are, or an artist's legacy and impact are measured. Like Fugazi before them, uh, they had many opportunities during this time to sign to a major label and try to get themselves on the radio and or MTV, but they steadfastly refused. Instead, they did it the hard way, and it earned them a sizable cult following and an impeccable reputation for artistic integrity. They are arguably the greatest female rock and roll band of all time. And in both of these curmudgeon's opinions, it is not even a, there is not even a close second. Nope. Uh, after a 10 year hiatus, they reemerged in 2015 with a very good album in No Cities to Love. Then they hit a rough patch. 
They brought on alternative pop rock star St. Vincent to produce 2019's The Center Won't Hold, and it was an unmitigated disaster. Their brilliant longtime drummer, Janet Weiss, left the band shortly after recording, reportedly due to the, the musical direction the band was undertaking that she did not approve of. The worries were not unfounded, <laughs> as uh, actually, you know, it was a labored attempt at at a generic cliche indie pop that felt underwritten and overproduced, and it drew the most lukewarm or worst reviews of the band's career. They came back in 2021 with the self-produced effort "Path of Wellness." And it didn't really move the needle commercially nor artistically. The music felt recycled and the songwriting was uninspired. It turns out that all Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein, uh, the band's leaders and dual singer-songwriter-guitarists, needed was a sympathetic producer. Enter this year's Little Rope, which marks a much-welcome return to form for a band I was all too ready to write off. John Congleton, a Grammy Award-winning producer and musician, brings discipline and focus to the core duo. According to Mojo Magazine, Corin Tucker recounts when she brought Congleton a melody and a song idea that she had come up with. The Congleton's response was that it simply wasn't good enough. <laughs> Tucker, naturally, was pissed off, but she went home, worked on it, and came back with a much better song. Loss. Dealing with loss, uh, finding the will to be strong and move on are the central lyrical themes of this album, brought on by the tragic deaths of Carrie Brownstein's mother and stepfather after a car accident while they were vacationing in Italy two years ago. While Tucker's voice and songwriting dominate the album, really, uh, Brownstein's guitar work achieves an understated elegance and shimmers, not to the forefront as Slater Kinney's usual sound requires, but around and underneath the songs, providing a support and an uplift that matches the lyrical content. Key tracks, Say It Like You Mean It, quite possibly the purest, prettiest pop song the band has ever produced. Uh, Hunt You Down with its Talking Heads-ish groove that also recalls fellow Pacific Northwest legends Modest Mouse with its uh, edgy hiccup vocals and the anti-Christian radical rant of uh, Crusader that rocks with a fluid melody and exotic disco beat. Oh, -ho! welcome back Slater Kinney. It's your, it, it's not the greatest album they ever did, but it is better than the previous two. They're back to doing good good albums. You were missed, Chris. Yeah, certainly not their greatest record. Of uh, that, that that's definitely what I'll say. Uh, it's it's definitely no cities to love. And yeah, there has been a fall off. Uh, boy, does this man miss Janet Weiss? Uh, even yes, though they do, they even, do. Even though the songwriting has restored and they've found a little bit of success in oddly emulating some Kate Bushish uh, mm. type of uh, sonic soundscapes with some of the, the the drum machine stuff that's on this record and yes uh carrie brownstein's guitar actually is uh pretty nice on this uh i'm a fan of the songs hell small finds and untidy creature uh not surprisingly those are probably the three most rockingest songs 
right. and so and it makes me it makes me pine for Janet Weiss because I mean I think it's pretty clear at this point after uh, a couple of records without her that she had an obvious influence on the energy and also on the arrangements. I think that <laughs> you know I mean just give, given the space that she, you know like you know the how she kept time and how she rumbled. I mean, it was something that like challenged uh, Brownstein and Tucker to build their guitar uh, arrangements around. And right. so without that, I mean, I guess it's a new challenge for Brownstein to paint, uh, to paint new corners, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But man, I, I miss it because the, the edge that they had, it's kind of akin uh, to when Jay Bennett was fired from Wilco. Yes. And, you know, how uh, he uh, was such an influence on uh, the sound, the arrangement and the energy, especially the energy and yeah. the sense and the sense of purpose uh, without that. You know, Tweedy's put out some uh, some pretty good records. I mean, he's put out one very good album and one great record in 10 years right. Right. Uh, or in 20 years, excuse me, uh, yeah. since uh, since Bennett uh, was dismissed. But uh uh, it there was there was a loss and i think it's the same thing here so it just you know the good stuff especially hell makes me pine for like the woods <laughs> and, or, or makes me yeah. pine for uh yeah. for one more hour from uh yeah. dick dick me out which is my favorite song uh, by slater kinney at this point mm -hmm. so yeah uh good record not great uh oddly kate bush and uh janet 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 uh you know your stuff with quasi has been great but uh, you've you've got two ladies who really really miss you, and I yeah. you know I in in my fantasy camp mind you're you're back with them and rocking out again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, on the occasion of Arturo examining the so so new output of Slater Kinney, I'm inspired to enter my parallel vault here, mm. and uh, I'm extracting a great example of what female rock and roll rage and Spitfire is supposed to sound like at yeah. its very best. Now, of course, Slater Kinney is an innovator of that model, but like we just said, those years have passed. So in that case, let us celebrate Amol and the Sniffers uh, instead. Uh, this Australian punk band's 2019 self-titled debut album is one of my favorites of the past five years. Arturo and I were inspired by this record enough to dedicate an entire Parallel Universe segment to the band's great follow-up album, Comfort to Me, two plus years ago. Now, one can make the argument that that album is better and more mature than the debut, but I'm sticking with this self-titled debut as my amyl drug of choice. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, uh, listening to it again this past week, I'm struck by how fresh and urgent it still sounds. It booms and bangs and thrusts and propels and bursts in barely controlled fits of attitude and nihilism. I mean, one of the best songs on this thing is called GFY, short naturally for Go Fuck Yourself. <laughs> the, the messaging here is pretty darn unambiguous. Now, I suppose any foursome can pick up instruments and make a joyful noise in the same spirit. Uh, but these kids immediately show that they were set apart and talented as hell. Uh, they are they're really through the record. There are awesome, crunchy guitar riffs, killer bass lines, crashing metronomic drums and just enough diversity in the songwriting to keep things engaging and surprisingly smart. The agility of long album opener and long album closer, Starfire 500 and Some Mutts Can't Be Muzzled, are undeniable. And the fact that the songs in between are so short and simple adds considerable charm to the mix. Mm. But the star here absolutely positively is singer-lyricist 
uh, and serious singer and lyricist Amy Taylor. She mm. is a screamer and a bitch on wheels of the grandest order. She is all attitude and whatever the female equivalent of virulent sexuality is. One of my favorite songs on the album, Control, on that song, Taylor yells unironically, I like being a big bad wolf. I like telling people off. Uh, this lady is not playing a role here. She is what she is, is, and the rock and roll world is better off for it. Now, uh, personally, I cannot wait to hear what Amal and the Sniffers deliver to the world next. Uh, they're on the verge of being one of the best rock bands in the world. But it starts here with the 2019 debut. While they may grow more sophisticated and get objectively better, they will never release a statement quite as pronounced or as welcome as this one, I don't think. This is still just an amazing and exciting listen. Pretty sure you agree, Redder. Oh, yeah. I mean, when this album came out in 2019, I mean, seriously, they're like, oh, man, it's hard for me to come up with the words to describe how excited I was when this album came out because it was pure, unabashed, kick you in the ass, take no prisoners, rock and roll. Yep. And I mean, in the last, you know, maybe, maybe not the decade, but the last half decade, the best rock and rolls really come from Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, 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 this band's in the forefront of that. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just pure. There's something pure about them. They, 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 there's no affect. There are no affectations. This is who they are. They are who they are. And it comes through in their music. It cuts through so much bullshit. They're the purest punky rock and roll band. Fuck indie. They're just rock and roll band. Yeah, pure absolutely. Punk, pure punk rock and roll. And a lot of the people who don't like them are, you know, the typical pretentious indie hipster douchebags, you know, who yep. like their music to be oh so polite oh we have to yeah. be polite all the time fuck that rock so, and roll is not supposed to be polite come on fuck so off. coincidentally if uh, folks if you've been listening to this podcast for the past two months i think arturo's got a trademark pending for indie hipster douchebag uh yes. with with the ut the uspto uh so he, <laughs> he he's going to be the proud owner so uh coming to a t-shirt near you uh it's going to say i'm not a hipster indie hipster douchebag listen uh, yeah, go ahead. Look at the trajectory from the first album, this one that we're talking about, to the second one. Ammo and the Sniffers, self-titled debut, debuted at number 22 in the Australian charts. Yep. By the time Comfort to Me came out in 2021, it went to number two in Australia, mm -hmm. number uh, 21 in the UK, okay? And I'm looking here at a chart that says U.S. sales, uh, top album sales. It actually went really high. It went as far as like very, very briefly went to 18 and then drip and then drip wow. down after that. So like this band really from one album to the next really made some he uh, headway, which yeah. means which means that they developed the following. Yes. You know, and, and, and there might be a star turn coming. There might be, a, yeah. Now you say, well, 2021, we're now in 2024. What happened? Well, 2021 was still pandemic time. What happened in 2022? They spent a lot of that year touring, making money. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, which money. is a good thing to do. Yeah. yeah. They needed to make some money and they opened for Weezer, Fallout Boy, and Green Day. Uh, especially on the European leg of that Hella Mega tour. And then last year, who do they open for? They open for Smashing Pumpkins. They open for Jane's Addiction. Those are some pretty heavyweight bands to be opening Yeah, I was going to say, that must have been a fun show. I mean, especially yeah. Ammo and Smashing Pumpkins must have been a really fun show. Yeah. 
And and Am will probably blew Billy Corgan off the stage. Well, yeah. I mean, at yeah. this point, yeah. I mean, it's not hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, but uh, so yeah, no. Uh, their new album, we're still waiting for it. But hey, they're still making their money and recouping off of COVID, and uh, they have their fans, man. They they they, they have a yes, big they fan do. base. I'm looking and, forward to their next album whenever it comes out. And and, and if I can give a uh, a, a, a brief four word uh, review of this band that I think says it all ACDC with a vagina. Chris here again, Arturo and I have differing feelings about the subscription streaming service, Spotify. While he likes to rail against the algorithmic component, I like the ability to find and then manage a personal catalog of music. The program is especially great for assembling playlists. Well, guess what? We've assembled a playlist to accompany this episode. The playlist features a healthy mix of all the music we describe and analyze during the episode. Think of it as a soundtrack to your curmudgeonly life. Find the link in this episode's description. And also become a member of our curmudgeonly community on Facebook if you haven't done so already. Let's now return to our regularly scheduled programming. So, any discussion or talk about 1968 in rock has to begin with the biggest band of the time. And that is the Beatles. And they're arguably, not for, not to me really, but arguably their most controversial album. And that is the legendary self-titled album, otherwise known as the White Album. We're talking about the second golden age of rock. We're now in the year 1968. And we're talking about the band of the era, the Beatles. Chris? Yeah, not so sure that it's more controversial than Let It Be, but it, it certainly <laughs> it certainly is controversial. And so that's that's a good call. So yes, let's talk about uh the self-titled record, The Beatles, otherwise colloquially known as the White Album, uh, which came out in uh, 1968. So the magical mystery tour of 1967 proved to be short-lived and as an era for the Beatles. Reality smacked that cosmic period back down to earth in 68. You might say that the band had a lousy 1968 for sure, with only their self-titled album of that year as its saving grace. But How man, be lousy if Hey Jude came out. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, but you know, they, you, I mean, you, you figured that their self-titled record and and Hey Jude Revolution as the saving grace. But man, <laughs> what a spectacular saving grace it was as the White Album. As I've said, is as it's colloquially known, the White Album is regarded as one of the band's very best records, and in the view of some, including my partner here, their very best. More on that in a bit. But the album came during a period of considerable uh, uh, unrest uh, for the band. Their manager, Brian Epstein, uh, mm -hmm. had died of an accidental drug overdose in August of 1967, leaving an absolutely broad gaping hole in the band's leadership and business acumen that eventually proved fatal. Paul McCartney's attempts to fill that leadership void, both musically and financially, were met with derision and open disdain by his bandmates, and efforts to get the band's label and associated media company Apple off the ground flailed. John Lennon, meanwhile, rejected the band's association with the Maharishi Yogi, even as George Harrison embraced it whole hog. The energy grew so bad at one point that Ringo Starr, drummer, actually quit the band for several weeks during the making of the White Album and had to be uh, uh, recruited back. Uh, 
uh, with hopefully no hard feelings. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So there was fracture, there was fissure, there was violent creative tension, and it all had the unintended but wonderful consequence of bringing out the best in each of these bandmates. The White Album is the sound of Paul, John, George, and even Ringo declaring musical independence and adulthood over the span of two albums, or two discs, even as they continue to mostly accompany each other on these songs. Paul traveled in two uh, really distinct directions here. Uh, he became a foremost crafter of silly uh, story songs with standouts including Obli D, Obla Da, and Rocky Raccoon. Obla D, Obla Da. That's what I tried to say. Obla D, Obla Da. <laughs> Jeez. You're the one that supposedly has been drinking before we came yeah. on the air. Jeez. <laughs> and uh, he also became a banger of rip rock and sing along, such as Back in the USSR, Birthday, and the especially gnarly Helter Skelter. Uh, wink, wink, uh, hint, hint, Charlie Manson. Uh, funny line here from Rob Sheffield's wonderful book, Dreaming the Beatles. Quote, you listen to Obladi Oblada, a lighthearted ode to family life beloved by children of all ages, and you're hearing John beat on the piano pretending that it's Paul's skull. End quote. <laughs> now, John, in a maturation phase, started to get in touch with his hurt inner child, delivering the beautiful ballad uh, and dedicated to his mother, Julia, the intense Maharishi toss off Sexy Sadie, and the appropriately weary sounding I'm So Tired. He also explored mysticism and the avant-garde on songs like Dear Prudence, Glass Onion, and the Yoko Ono collaboration Revolution No. 9, a noise collage that scared the shit out of me the first time I heard it as a 15-year-old kid. Now, uh, I'm usually predisposed to say that, that, Paul, uh, uh, that most Beatle albums are Paul albums. Uh, I would say that the White Album is pretty clearly a John record uh, overall. Uh, anyway, uh, George... Harrison leapt forward stunningly as a songwriter and found a distinctly melodic voice recruiting his friend Eric Clapton to shred accordingly on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. There was the amusingly contemptuous Piggies and the horn-spiked rocker Savoy Truffle. And Ringo even got a star turn here uh, on the first song he wrote to make a Beatles record, uh, the mid-tempo thumper Don't Pass Me By. The uh, diversity, the dizzying flow, and relentless pace of these songs uh, was absolutely stunning. The White Album simultaneously blew up the notion of a unified band while somehow creating a unified whole. Neat trick. Uh, Rob Sheffield will get my last words here. Quote, more than any other Beatles music, the White Album feels like a map tracing the points from boyhood to manhood. It has kiddie sing songs, teenage lust, adult breakdowns of sex, death, destruction, religion, insomnia, and despair, ending with Ringo crooning a schmaltzy old Hollywood lullaby. It's grown men trying to speak the lost language of children. Yet for all the rancor, you can hear all four tap into that old team spirit. As John said, quote, Dylan broke his neck and we went to India. Everybody did their bit. And now we're all just coming out, coming out of a shell in a new way of kind of saying... Remember what it was like to play, quote, end quote, end quote. Arturo, uh, I'm sure you have a hell of a lot to say about this album, which I know you love. Oh, boy. All right. Well, on this podcast, we have spoken at length about the bullshit myth surrounding double albums. 
that they are usually bloated and indulgent and should all be edited to single length. You can, and I have in our best of 2022 episode, when I talked about Big Thief's brilliant album, double album, uh, Dragon, New Moon Mountain, I Believe in You, um, you can make a long, comprehensive list of double albums throughout music history that prove that double albums are, for the most part, uh, that they range from good to great, and they are usually either among an artist's best work or they are their best work. Nevermore has this been truer than when regarding the Beatles' self-titled album, forever known as the White Album. As a Beatles fan, it enrages me whenever I hear or read people go on about how this record should have been edited to a single album. It's, it is absolute ignorant nonsense from people whose collective musical taste is either up their ass, hmm. their collective ass, or people who aren't open-minded or, or, or even astute enough to understand what the White Album really is and what it really stands for. Detractors of this masterpiece tend to think or say that it's a hodgepodge. It's a slapdash collection of songs by John, Paul, and George that amount to nothing more than three or four, if you want to count Ringo, uh, solo albums put together. Wrong on so many levels. What people have to understand and sometimes fail to understand is that while the recording of the White Album in the studio was fractious and fraught with arguments, bickering, and infighting, the composing of these songs came at a time when the band were still a cohesive, unified front. Most of the material was written when they were doing their, as you alluded to, Chris, their spiritual retreats with the Maharishi Yogi in India. After they returned to England, they workshopped and demoed the songs in one of George Harrison's homes. You can hear all these demos on YouTube if you want to, and any combination of words you want to put up there. It was the sound of a band still together, still sharp, still in peak form, and still firing on all cylinders. And then you have the form, structure, and thematic content of the album itself. No, it is not indulgent, incoherent hogwash. The White Album, from start to finish, is a musically, aesthetically, thematically, and lyrically coherent and cohesive record that stands as one of the greatest artistic statements of any art form of the 20th century. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, the band set out to make a record that was the polar opposite of Sgt. Pepper's in every way. What is Sgt. Pepper's aesthetically? Color and unity. What is the White Album? Monochromatic. White and black. No color. Also, it is fractured and fragmented, almost uncomfortably skewed. People who take issue with the haphazard shape of the music just don't understand the fractured and how would I say it? You know, they, 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 they just don't get the fractured, fragmented feel of the album and that it is the whole point of the freaking album. Mm -hmm. Musically and visually, 
especially if you open the gatefold cover of the original LP. It reinforces that notion. Now, why would they do that? That brings us to the lyrical themes of the White Album. Sgt. Pepper's was all about togetherness and finding beauty and comfort either within yourself or outside of yourself, while also looking to bridge a generation gap. The White Album finds the Beatles taking a more cynical tone. From one song to another, the recurring theme is satire actually enforcing the generation gap, and more specifically, satirizing conventional, conservative, quote-unquote, straight society, which is becoming more fractured and fragmented as the Beatles saw it in 1968. Paul McCartney, while an avowed Beach Boys fan, cannot help but take a friendly jab at them with the spoof back in the USSR. Rocky Raccoon sees McCartney satirize the traditional tropes of Hollywood westerns. Why don't we do it on the road? In the road, sorry. Finds McCartney going to full-on sex rock mode while also taking a friendly shot at blues stereotypes. His attempt at trying to match the heaviness of the Who on Helter Skelter also manages to rollickingly spoof and it is a rollicking spoof of the heavy direction that rock music in general was going in at that time. George Harrison's Piggies is hated mm -hmm. by a lot of people, but it perfectly fits the overall song. theme of the album with its vicious portrayal of the gluttony and greed of the middle and upper classes. This attack shows itself again on disc two with Harrison's Savoy Truffle. No, folks, it is not just about Harrison's love of sweet pastries. Mm. He was blossoming as a songwriter at this point and becoming an underrated lyricist, providing a subtle commentary on gluttony and greed by putting a version of himself up front and center. And, of course, there's John Lennon, whose songwriting and singing on this record are a tour de force. Uh, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill with its sing-along chorus is one of the most poignant songs on the whole album, taking on the ethical issues of big game hunting among the aristocracy and daring to ask what kind of example this sets for children. Uh, the rollicking glass onion seems to satirize the whole Beatle myth. Your Blues is his counterpoint to McCartney's Why Don't We Do It in the Road? a song that spoofs the blues while also bathing and glorifying in its sweaty, heated intensity. Sexy Sadie is Lennon's scathing attack on his perceived hypocrisy of the Maharishi Yogi's supposed holiness, serving as a rebuttal to the whole flower power movement's seeming obsession with spiritual enlightenment. Even the most controversial song on the album, Revolution 9, works in the broader context context sorry of what this album is about now calling it a terrible song like a lot of people on social media <laughs> is actually an inaccurate disservice and it's it an insult not, it's not a song it's not a song at all yeah. it's an experimental sound collage by calling it revolution nine lennon actually tips his hat as to what the piece of music or whatever you want to call it is actually about in both Revolution 1, the acoustic bluesy version, and Revolution, the rocking B-side to Hey Jude, 
Hey Jude. Lenin confronts the turbulent political mood of the time again, again, a fractured, fragmented society. With the unsettling sounds and noise effects, Lenin is evoking the feeling and the utter dread of what a revolution would actually feel and sound like. The genius stroke is when this track toward the end of the album is juxtaposed with the very last song on the album, Good Night, <laughs> another, another Lennon number, this time sung by Ringo Starr. Originally written as an acoustic lullaby for Lennon's son Julian and offered to Frank Sinatra, in the Beatles' hands, it's another glorious piece of satire, this time of the heavily orchestrated, string-laden, sentimental, mushy, popular music yep. of the previous generation. Putting it immediately after the atonal dread of Revolution 9, it's the Beatles' attempt to comfort the listener after the full-on assault of the previous track, while at the same time serving one last dash of a cheeky middle-fingering to, to the conventional straight society the band are increasingly antagonistic toward. Yeah, that's a good call. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know it's going to be all right. Yeah, is is but, basically <laughs> what 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 that's all about. So that, yeah, that's that's pretty yeah. cool. Good call. Yeah, yeah. Even the songs that are not overtly aligned with the overall satiric theme of the album make sense in their inclusion when one takes a step back and looks at them with a keen critical eye. Lenin supposedly hated Obladi Oblada, but the supposed romantic utopia of the characters in McCartney's attempt at happy-go-lucky ska is thrown off a bit by the wistful, almost sighing, sighing sad of resignation at the life-goes-on part of the chorus, implying that this happiness is bound to end. Uh, Harrison's While My Guitar Gently Weeps mourns the lack of love and compassion in a world gone wrong. Again, fractured, fragmented society. Things are fucked up. Uh, Lennon's I'm So Tired reflects that same frustration with world weariness. McCartney's birthday on the surface seems like typical McCartney-esque whimsical bullshit, but in the context of the record can be seen as a condemnation of conventional society's shallowness and inherent silliness. While Lennon's Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey seems like crappy surrealist humor, but is actually Lennon, perhaps being a bit self-righteous, taking a shot at the dishonesty and untrustworthiness of straight society. Cry Baby Cry, another Lennon classic, takes the sadness of the harsh generation gap in McCartney's She's Leaving Home from Sgt. Pepper's and takes it to the next evolutionary step, another sad resignation of misunderstanding and differences that will never be reconciled, yep. another symptom of a fractured, fragmented society. McCartney's lovely Blackbird isn't just a, about a bird striving to be free. In McCartney's own words, although in later years he does exhibit a tendency to change his story from time to time from one interview to another, it is an allegory for the civil rights movement, another result of a fractured, fragmented society. 
Lenin's gorgeous Dear Prudence, and if, uh, an evocation of and an invitation to pure, no strings attached love and self actualization, doesn't show social satire on its own. But when placed in the track listing between the Beach Boys spoof back in the USSR and the self emulation of Glass Onion, it offers a glimpse of hope and the chance for love and wonder in, yes, again, a fractured, fragmented society gone wrong. Even Lenin's Julia, obviously an acoustic ode to his deceased mother, works in the album's context. It's looking to the comfort and love of a mother in the midst of a world going increasingly wrong. I can go on and on. <laughs> this is not only my favorite Beatles album, it is in my not-so-humble opinion, hands down their greatest album, uh, where even the very few quote-unquote bad tracks work and fit in the greater whole. It is also, in my not-so-humble opinion, on a short list of candidates for the claim as the greatest album ever made of all time. Chris? Yeah, I, I mean, that that was a pretty sterling defense of the record. I would still put Abbey Road and Revolver, uh, at, at least those two, ahead of it. Uh, Bullshit. I think, I, Abbey I think, Road, overrated. Revolver, great. Slightly overrated. Yeah, for, for what it's worth, Abbey Road is now the highest uh, charting uh uh, album on the greatest uh, albums of all time list for Rolling Stone. I believe it came in at like number four or number five. five. Number five. five. Yeah, some, something pretty high. Uh, so that's so that's uh, interesting to know. And so, I mean, I just think that just uh, in terms of a, a, feat of, a feat of engineering and a feat of, of, of just sort of deaf joy, uh, as in deft uh, not not deaf not not deaf jam uh, deaf yeah. joy yeah. as a, as a symbol of that I think it's great and I think and in revolver obviously because of you know the the way it just blows up the world and just sort of reinvents uh, everything uh, is just uh, uh, is absolutely astonishing but I, I mean I think the white album is right there I mean again it's just it's such an engaging listen you're you're right that that it's what a, t a 29 song record I, I want to say it's 29. Uh, songs and the white album has an overall lyrical theme. Abbey Road doesn't. Yeah. Oh, I, and I know. I mean, it, there there is a theme, but but there's also uh, it it never there's there's not a wasted note uh, over the yeah. course of thirty songs. There's no wasted even note. what quote unquote sucks works in the context. Yeah, absolutely. And and it you know you have these fun notes and everything is well placed. It's one of the it's one of the most perfect sequencing jobs. Uh, yeah. in the in the history of rock and roll that that is for sure and again like i said it's just like this uh you know they they were a fractured band but they somehow pulled off the miracle of of making m m possibly their most unified record uh yeah. e even though they couldn't stand each other <laughs> in yeah. in the course of making it uh they 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 managed to come up with a really unified uh a unified statement uh a collective statement so again it's 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 one of rock's great uh paradoxical accomplishments uh, in that sense. And so, so yeah, we, we, we just wrote ourselves a treatise on the white album. Uh, uh, good, 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 good stuff, brother. Good stuff. Thank you. And so, uh, from there, uh, so as we've done in these second golden age of rock, uh, episodes that we've done for each year, we seem to start with the Beatles and then come with a Oh yeah. And then the beat, you can't talk about the Beatles without talking about the Rolling Stones. Well, here in 1968, in terms of being album artists and also serious artists, 
the Rolling Stones officially catch up and then some uh, with uh, the release of Beggar's Banquet. Arturo, tell us about uh, Beggar's Banquet and uh, the follow-up to their Satanic Majesty's request from the year before. Yeah. Towards the end of 1967, the Rolling Stones were seen as the number one contenders for the Beatles World Heavyweight Championship title <laughs> when mm. their psychedelic opus, their Satanic Majesty's Request, became a critical and commercial failure. They were seen by some as finished, as a washed-up band with nothing left to offer. Two things happened that changed the band's fortunes and musical direction, and they both had to do with Keith Richards. First, during the Stones' many tours of the U.S. from 1964 through 66, Richards bought a ton of old blues, folk, and country records of the old vintage American variety. Uh, due to the constant touring and busy schedule, not to mention the craziness that enveloped the band throughout 1967, Richards never got a chance to fully listen to his purchases. As 1968 came around and with no touring commitments, Richards got that chance and rekindled his love affair with the blues as well as with other kinds of American roots music. This love affair would point the way toward the sound he wanted to take his band in. Second, there was his discovery of open tuning for his guitar, something he learned from listening to said old blues albums, applying the technique to rock and roll and some pretty nifty and original recording techniques. It gave the Stones a new, exciting, and innovative sound, uh, uh, first heard on the classic symbol Jumpin' Jack Flash, released in May 1968, a worldwide hit, uh, to hear Richards himself describe the sound. Quote, I used a Gibson Hummingbird acoustic turned to tuned to open D, six string, open D to open E, which is the same thing, same intervals, but it would be slackened down some for D. Then there was a capo on it to get that really tight sound. And there was another guitar over the top of that, but tuned to Nashville tuning. I learned that from somebody in George Jones's band in San Antonio in 1964. <laughs> oh, to be uh, a fly on the wall in that room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Two drunks in the same room. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the high strung guitar was an acoustic too. Bo both acoustics were put through a Phillips cassette recorder. Just jam the mic right in the guitar and play it back through an extension speaker. End quote. The credit shouldn't go all to Richards, though. Mick Jagger was growing as a more sophisticated and underratedly intelligent lyricist. He joined Richards as a wavelength in going back to kick-ass, roots-based rock and roll. According to him, the song came, quote, out of all the acid of satanic majesties, it's about having a hard time and getting out, just a metaphor for getting out of all the acid things, end quote. Even Brian Jones, who was getting increasingly lost in his drug addiction fog at this time, said the song was, quote, getting back to the funky essential essence, end quote. Well, it worked. <laughs> not, yeah, it only did. Did, not only did Jumpin' Jack Flash reintroduce the Rolling Stones as a badass rock and roll band, it revitalized the band's commercial fortunes. It was a worldwide top 10 hit going to number one in both the U.S. and the U.K. 
This, of course, was just a primer for what would come next. And that would be the first album of the Stones' imperial phase and one of the greatest album streaks in rock history. When Beggar's Banquet came out in December 1968, it shocked critics and fans with its down-and-dirty evocation of grimy blues rock and rough-and-tumble authentic folk and country rock. Of course, the general tone of the album isn't what listeners are confronted with when track one starts out. <laughs> Sympathy for the Devil is a candidate for the greatest Stone song ever, with its Latin rhythms, Bill Wyman's slinky bass lines that were later ripped off by uh, 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 Iggy Pop in Lust for Life, <laughs> and uh, Keith Richards' staccato guitars driving the track into an intense polyrhythmic orgy. Jagger's sly lyrics, based on Mikhail Bulgakov's novel, The Master and Margarita, show him writing in character as Satan and taking credit for much of the world's evils. And it shows Mick at his most defiantly sinister and sinister, sinisterly clever. Uh, Dear Doctor, Prodigal Son, and the subterranean sludge of Parachute Woman shows how fluent the Stones had become at recreating authentic blues, probably the best white band in history to ever do it. Yeah. Uh, Factory Girl is the first shot of uh, Keith Richards' uh, obsession with country and gets it sublimely right. Uh, the mournful ballad, No Expectations, has some exquisite slide guitar work by Brian Jones and serves as his last great contribution to the band. The sleazy, sordid tale of having a threesome with a 16-year-old girl and her mother <laughs> is the <laughs> narrative that drives uh, Stray Cat Blues, one of the funkiest full-throttle blues rock bru bruisers in the Stones' entire catalog and uh, makes you want to get nasty. Oh yeah, <laughs> it exemplifies Charlie Watts's drumming genius for utilizing his jazz chops to stay just one step behind the beat, uh, and and Richards's riff as well, giving the track its offbeat, slightly off kilter slack rhythm. Uh, the album ends with the band's first foray into epic anthemic gospel with "Salt of the Earth." Proof that even this band of hedonistic degenerates can make Jesus music sound cool. Yep. <laughs> Throughout the decade of the 1960s, the Rolling Stones always managed to release singles that rivaled some of the Beatles' best singles. With Beggar's Banquet, they finally matched the Beatles as an album's band. They would surpass them the following year, but that's another story. Chris? Yes, it is. Uh, I can just imagine... Uh, when this album comes out late in 68, I could just imagine it must have been a sh real shock to the system, to yeah. people who were paying attention for them to go from, you know, a, a few great singles here and there. And uh, then that what was seen as a misfire at the time and their satanic majesty's request to go from that to this absolute masterpiece yeah. uh, was just must have been really, really just not even just striking, but shocking. Yeah. Uh, we we have to note that this is where they uh, made the transition from Andrew Luke Oldham as yeah. their producer to Jimmy Miller. Uh, mm. Jim, Jimmy Miller was a was a, an actual musician. L Luke Oldham as 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 a producer, he was a good engineer. 
or a competent. <laughs> he was a competent engineer, but as a producer, not there. So Jimmy Miller was like a, he he actually was a guy who like lived the blues and lived the live lived roots mm-hmm. music, and it really really shows in in just how uh, well arranged, orchestrated, recorded, uh, and just how alive everything sounds. Starting from this record, he he manned the boards for uh, I believe it was uh, five straight records. Uh, starting uh, starting on this one and uh, really, really just makes a huge difference. And just the leap in sophistication, I don't think anybody could have expected them to come up with stuff like Stray Cat Blues and Factory Girl. Uh, or Sympathy for the Devil. Or Sympathy for the Devil. But, you know, based on what had come before it, even though they, you know, I mean, Jumping Jack Flash is a great single. Uh, and, uh, you know, they also had Honky Tonk uh, Woman, uh, which, you know, I think might actually have been the B-side of Jumping Jack but was uh, was really great. It was, it was not. It was a Children okay. of the Moon. Okay, gotcha. And then, uh, but, but even stuff like Ruby Tuesday and and stuff like that from the couple years before, Paint It Black. I mean, they had they had great singles in them, but I don't think that going from that to these sort of deep cuts that really embody the spirit of country music and of of blues and like you said, you know the the, the ingenious drumming of Charlie Watts, not just on that song, but a couple of others like the street fighting man too, where he kind of, uh, bring, you know, brings up his, his jazz chops to go with that yeah, sort of, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that sort of, uh, American uh, vernacular music. Uh, it's just, it's just really astonishing. And, and here's the thing that, you know, beggars banquet, we're, we're focusing on it. I'm listening to that record in preparation for this episode this week. And if you rank beggars banquet, let it bleed from 69, six sticky fingers from 71, and Exile on Main Street from 72. Beggar's Banquet is fourth uh, mm. in, in my that mind. That tells you how great that streak was. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. And, and and so I think Beggar's Banquet gets a little bit lost for it being as brilliant as it is, is because it's in the shadow of those other three albums. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, definitely, folks, you know, check out Beggar's Banquet and just just marvel at, again, its sophistication, its uh, the, the, the expanse of its uh, vocabulary and understanding of American musical forms of the 20th century. And, and just no uh, white band did it better. No white band did it better to this, and, to this day. <laughs> yeah. And it also speaks to the, it also speaks to the genius of, you know, Keith Richards is, he's, you know, caricatured as, you know, being, how is that guy still alive and being the druggie and being the, the uh, basis for the Jack Sparrow character in the pirates of the Caribbean movies. But uh, that guy was a genius. Yeah. And what Artie just described uh, in terms of his his engineering chops and h- how he got the sound uh, that he did for much of this record, uh, Richards Richards deserves his props as a, as a true rock and roll genius and one one of the foremost uh, of all time. And so uh, he he take him seriously, take him seriously, folks, and take this band seriously, take this ar- take this album seriously. Great, great, great stuff. On this episode, we continued our second Golden Age of Rock series by analyzing the year 1968. For the next episode, we are moving to the first decade of the 21st century to talk about a band that is near and dear to our hearts. It was a very fertile decade for rock music as bands like The White Stripes, The Strokes, LCD Sound System, Kings of Leon, and Arctic Monkeys got all kinds of critical and commercial acclaim. But one band flew under the radar during this time and had a staggeringly brilliant five-album run from 2001 
to 2010 that not only ranks among some of the best rock music of the, of this decade, but also arguably surpasses the output of some of the bands I just mentioned. The name of this group is Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you the most underrated band of the naughties, or the aughts, whatever you want to call it. All right, next. Chris, you're going to tackle a Russian novel length of albums here, but they all deserve to be put in the same segment. I don't know how I can add to this one, but yeah, dude, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, kind of building off the theme that we, you know, that Arturo talked about a little bit before, and you'll you'll notice that in 68, uh, we we named our 1967 episode of this second golden age of series. We we subtitled it Arrivals in Technicolor because, you know, everything was loud. It was boisterous. It was explosive. It was kaleidoscopic. It was psychedelic. It was uh, it was pastel. Uh, well, uh, in 68, what you found is that uh, things started to dial back. I mean, there was I think there was a high point and yeah. folks were were looking to get past that or to, you know, to restore. And so what you ended up with was more monochromatic. And if it, if there was color, it was worn rustic hues. You know, it was it, it was rolling hills. <laughs> the beginning <laughs> you know? of the, the beginning of the guys in the woods. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Of album covers and rock starting from the late 60s to the early to mid 70s, when anything that was slightly rustic and acoustic and folk rocky, it's always people in the woods. That's yes, the absolutely. Which which actually the epitome of it was the first one, which was John Wesley Harding by Dylan in late 67. <laughs> Dylan with a bunch <laughs> of Native Americans in the woods. He's, he's in the woods with Indians. Yeah, it's yeah, it doesn't doesn't get more uh, does, doesn't get rootsier than that, folks. Uh, for sure. So uh, so what we have here is we have this indicative movement of uh, bands wanting to get back to the roots of American and British vernacular music. And so uh, so we have uh, three uh, bands and, and albums that we're going to focus on. One American, one American, one mostly Canadian and one British. And uh, you're talking about bringing cultural heritage uh, into the forefront to really, uh, it, you know, innovating by bringing things to the past and splicing that, you know, from the past and, and really splicing them with that contemporary 68 rock and roll ethic. And so you end up with three tremendous albums, uh, namely the bird sweetheart of the rodeo, the band's music from big pink and the kinks, uh, the kinks are, uh, the village green Pres uh, preservation society. Uh, which are just uh, all tremendous records. I'm going to do them uh, one by one, taking them in the order that they were released in 68. So we're going to start with the band's music from Big Pink. Hey, not bad for Bob Dylan's backup band, right? Yeah, yeah. So innovative. yes. yes. So innovative and original, even, yes. even when they're going back to the roots. Yes. So yes, the band famously accompanied Dylan on a tour of the UK in 1966. But a band of this magnitude was due for its own star turn, even after spending a chunk of 1967 recording with and for Dylan in upstate New York. Much of the result of those recording sessions, conducted at a rented house affectionately known as Big Pink, found the light of day years later with the release of the basement tapes, I believe, in 1975. Uh, not 
all the revelations were reserved for Dylan, however. It was during that time that the band started to find its own footing writing its own songs. Those originals, along with three Dylan co-compositions, comprised the band's debut album, Music from Big Pink, recorded months later in New York and released in July of 1968. Now, how to describe the music of the band? I think a good way to do it is to deem it a soulful hybrid of rhythm and blues, folk, and country music. It was American vernacular music as crafted by four Canadian dudes and a rascal from Arkansas. The band's recorded output was uh, light on overdubs. It was light on overdubs, and it was also light on pretension, uh, telling throwback stories and expressing nakedly raw sentiments as if they were the norm rather than the exception. And make no mistake, what the band accomplished was an exception in a pop world dominated by psychedelic slop and smaltzy pop in 1968. One thing to point out about music from Big Pink is its balance. That's immediately apparent. Uh, guitarist Robbie Robertson became the primary songwriter on subsequent albums, but here contributed just four songs, including most famously The Weight, which at uh, right now is at 329 million plus plays and counting on Spotify. But he also contributes the weird and wild Chest Fever, which is defined by Garth, uh, Garth Hudson's devilish church organ playing and also features one of the best name song names in rock history. Uh, <laughs> yeah, chest fever, baby, chest fever. I think of so. chest Rockwell from Boogie Nights. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> That's a good call. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, now uh, Robertson's bandmate Richard Manuel offers three songs of his own, including the gorgeous ballad "Lonesome Susie." Now Dylan naturally, as I said, has three songwriting credits including co-writes with Manuel on album opener Tears of Rage and with bassist Rick Danko on the rousing This Wheel's on Fire. Now, Dylan's lone solo credit, which is debatable, actually, yeah. uh, Bert's the debut album's best song, the yeah. unbelievably transcendent white boy gospel of I Shall Be Released, right. defined by Manuel's soaring cracked falsetto vocal performance, Seriously, this has one of the most unbelievable lyrics in the history of rock and roll. When he when he starts talking about where he sees the light shining down from the west on down to the east. Well, uh, if if anybody knows anything about the Old Testament, uh, when they talk about God and his winds and his ruach, the spirit, it always travels from east to west. Mm. So now if he's getting his self-revelation from the west down to the east... That means he's been heading in the wrong direction. <laughs> and so now uh, this is uh, coming to see the light and getting over that wall that's too high for him to see on on the second uh, on the second verse. And so, uh, you know, Dylan, uh, for a Jew, uh, what 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 a great gospel writer, <laughs> you know, uh, he's one of the foremost like like bearable gospel writers in rock uh, ever. Uh, and that's just testament uh, to that. So uh, music from Big Pink enjoyed modest success, peaking at number 30 on the Billboard 200 albums chart. The Weight also reached number 63 on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. That was a harbinger of greater success to come on the next year's self-titled masterpiece. At some point, some pop music encyclopedias dubbed the band's blend of styles as Americana, which to me trivialized what these guys actually were able to do. A better descriptor for the band's thing may actually just be America. 
as the country's musical stylings of the previous hundred years is really what the band captured. They may have been rock's grandest traditionalists. No varnish, no polish, just their instruments and expansive music vocabulary and buckets full of sincerity. The world was a better place for it. Arturo, your thoughts on this album? Did you know that the album cover for the band's music from Big Pink was actually a, it is or was a painting by Bob Dylan himself? Oh, no, no, no fooling. No fooling. Yeah. That interesting trivia. No so trivia the, there. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. So any, any thoughts on the album itself? Oh, dude. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. You know, listen, um, I personally am a fan of their version of the old, uh, the old traditional long black veil. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, that that Johnny Cash covered, but I think the band's ber- the, the the sorry the band's version is the best version of that song. Uh, is it uh, with, with, with Rick Danko, the bass player, and his vocals? Yeah, um, I mean, people talk about Manuel's vocals and and um, uh, Levon uh, Levon Helms' vocals. Danko, Danko is the best singer in that band. Danko was just as emotive as a single as a singer as any of them, yeah. and uh, uh, their version of, of of Long Black Veil to me is the definitive version. Yeah, it, it's certainly my favorite version, and because the arrangement uh, kind of borders yeah. on because the, the it borders on soul, almost like Staxy right. type soul, as yeah. a, as opposed to this sort of uh, uh, made made for big voiced singers uh, ballad. Which is yeah. you know, in most of the versions, like you know, that like the the Carter family uh, had a right. version of it uh, that right. uh, uh, you know, like the, you know, Johnny Cash's in laws uh, had a yeah. version of it that 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 plays just very straight. Where whereas this one is more definitely more rousing and just kind of right. showed the spirit. Uh, you know that 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 band was long on spirit. They yeah. they were they were short on bullshit, long on spirit. And yeah. that's why we uh, need to honor them. Uh, speaking of honoring uh, uh, American uh, musical tradition, let's move on to the next of these albums, The Birds' Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Now, in 1968, The Birds went from being eight miles high along a psychedelic highway to eight miles down a long, out-in-the-country dirt road. <laughs> Pedal steel guitars took the place of Roger McGuinn's 12-string Rickenbacker. Indeed... The Birds adopted a lot of country music to go with a little bit of rock and roll on Sweetheart of the Rodeo. It's groundbreaking 1968 album released in August, sometimes referred to as the first country rock record, although that's debatable. Right. Uh, this is what happens when you invite a, rung, a, a young, rambunctious singer-songwriter named Graham Parsons to join your band. Uh, Birds mainstays Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman were in need of two uh, new bandmates entering 1968, having just fired David Crosby and Michael Clark. They auditioned and hired Parsons ostensibly with him as a pianist in mind. Parsons, though, was too ambitious to merely toe the line. He came to the band in a full-blown country and western phase and soon pushed for the Birds to adopt it for its own purposes. This meant cornball traditionalism along with the rebel-born living it out fair. Initially skeptical, uh, McGuinn eventually relented and Sweetheart of the Rodeo was born. Now, ironically, Parsons was gone from the birds by the time the album hit the record store shelves in August of 68. Uh, Legal issues with Parsons' old label and a power struggle with McGuinn, both of which prompted McGuinn to overdub Parsons' lead vocals on three of the uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo songs. 
so th there is some debate whether that was legal or whether that was just McGuinn fucking with Parsons. Uh, yeah. That ensured uh, that uh, all of that ensured that uh, Parsons tenure would be short lived. You know, Parsons was kind of a wild child. And at, at some point right. along there, the birds get over to England. Uh, uh, Parsons hooks up with, with Jagger and especially Keith Richards. And he joins that party. And there went the birds. But uh, no matter what Parsons left behind was a stone cold masterpiece of an album, probably one of the 200 best ever made. Uh, the manner in which the birds spliced their previous energy, purpose and gift for arrangement with their newfound country leanings was absolutely stunning. This was especially apparent on the album's two requisite Bob Dylan covers. The birds, if, if you didn't know, covered a shitload of Dylan songs. Uh, you ain't going nowhere and nothing was delivered. And on two Parsons uh, uh, originals, the heartachingly rendered Hickory Wind and my personal favorite, and I think the best song on the record, uh, The Rollicking 100 Years From Now. Yeah. Which is weird because it's a Graham Parsons original, but uh, the vocals are uh, done by McGuinn and Hillman. Mm. <laughs> it's harmony vocals from the two, the two other guys, even though it's Parsons' best contribution to the birds by far. Uh, it was also evident uh, the the, the uh, this newfound country leaning and that this this mastery was also evident in the band's bold choice of cover tunes, which ranged from the Leuven Brothers' "Hokey but Pretty," the Christian Life, to Woody Guthrie's bluegrass inflected "Pretty Boy Floyd," to Merle Haggard's honky tonk classic "Life in Prison." Mm. Sweetheart of the Rodeo flopped commercially, and the Birds managed to hold on for six more records before disbanding never again reaching these artistic heights. Parsons went on to become a country rock icon, taking what he helped thrust into the mainstream here and perfecting it, first along with Hillman in the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then has his own great, great Grievous Angel out there on the street doing his own thing. Did the Birds actually invent country rock in recording Sweetheart of the Rodeo? Uh, that's really debatable, especially since Bob Dylan did a pretty good damn damn job of uh, combining the genres on just John Wesley Harding the year before in 67. But the Birds sure as hell perfected the formula on this album. It was a proto-punk statement of sorts, of sorts to abandon its tested and endorsed folk rock formula in favor of going cowpoke. But it worked then and it continues to work now. Sweetheart of the Rodeo remains an inspired listen. Arturo, what say you? Yeah, calling this their artistic peak, man. After this, Roger McGuinn uh, uh, um, reformed the birds around the, the guitarist Clarence White. There are a lot of Clarence White fans out there, man. You're going to yeah. you just piss them off. <laughs> yeah, I'm anyway. sure. I'm sure I did. Um, yeah. Do you know that uh, aside from like, you know, when the birds went to England, and uh, uh, Graham Parsons hooked up with uh, Keith and actually it was Mick. Sorry, it was Keith. It was actually Keith and uh, hooked up with them and left the birds. One of the sticking points was that the birds had a tour of South Africa. Yes. Yes. During this time. And uh, that was kind of like among like, you know, the, you know, the more lefty uh, uh, political people uh, in, in rock circles. That was kind of a taboo. Yeah. And uh, Keith Richards is one of those who told uh, um, who told Grant Parsons that man, don't go to South Africa. Those guys are racist down there. Yep. And uh, and yeah, and that was a big that was a big reason uh, um, for Parsons leaving the Birds. And um, but yeah, but when I think of this record, is how authentic their attempt at country really is, and their takes on it are really, really just 
is sincere. It's authentic. It's 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 truer country than even a lot of the country that was coming out even at that time. Yeah, I mean, the most astonishingly orthodox thing on it is the cover of "I Am a Pilgrim," right? Uh, which is a traditional uh, uh, tune. It's it's one of those uh, standards that sure. nobody knows who actually wrote it. But uh, the way that they do it with the with there's you know the fiddle on there and just the, the the acoustic strumming and then just the uh the really earnest vocal from roger mcguinn mm -hmm. it just right. astonishingly orthodox and you know so they they weren't faking it they weren't saying hey man we're guys from la doing country we're cool no they were doing a country record yeah. uh and uh so the authenticity like you said the authenticity and the sincerity and the realism uh that they pumped into it like even like like nothing was delivered they they somehow managed to get a little bit of country boogie in that, right? Which you know you know it was hard to find uh, up until John Wesley Harding it was it was hard to find much country in sure. in Dylan. I mean yeah, and granted later on I believe it was sixty eight was it sixty eight or sixty nine that he did Nashville Skyline. Sixty nine. It was sixty nine. Okay. Yeah. So so this is kind of a forerunner to that because a lot of people look at the uh, at Nashville Skyline as being kind of a a huge con contribution or kind of an evolutionary step in country rock. Uh, as, as well, uh, I personally don't. I, th I think that record is overrated. But uh, but anyway, uh, the birds really hit it out of the park with uh, with this record. Uh, so that was the American uh, vernacular uh, accomplishment of uh, of going back to the roots. <laughs> going back to the roots. Now let's get to the British vernacular accomplishment, arguably right. of 1968, and we're going to the Kinks, who at this point. Uh, I think officially achieved uh, sort of cult band status with mm -hmm. the kinks are the village green preservation society. That is the full name of uh, this album, which uh, again is another one of those that probably belongs in the top 200 albums of all of, of all time. It's my personal favorite kinks record. So let's talk about it. Uh, the kinks were the most English of all the British wave bands, uh, though not necessarily by choice. Uh, the band uh, a lot of people don't realize this because it's kind of lost history. They were actually barred from touring in the U.S. for five years, starting in 1965. Yeah. And that was the product of bad political dealings with the main American musicians union. Uh, you know, uh, just uh, uh, Ray Davies kind of chucks that up to a combination of, of bad knowledge and bad behavior. Uh, <laughs> so in other words, they, they were a little too droll at the wrong time and got themselves uh, blackballed from the U.S. Well, that turned out to be a very good thing for the rock and roll canon as it put Ray Davies in a position to turn his witty satirical eye towards his countrymen and their mores and also convey a certain reverence for tradition and what urbanization was helping to fade away there over in, in England. Uh, it's the latter theme there that Davies and his bandmates mine on the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society, released in November 68, paying nostalgic tribute to a passing era and meditating on the very concept of memory in doing so. They get considerable mileage out of the influence of a photograph throughout the album, most notably on the incredible Baroque pop tune picture book. Seriously, uh, one of the best and most ripped off yeah. songs of all time. <laughs> you know, the, the guitar Green part Day of, ripped it off. Yeah, yeah. It, for basically, warning. Note, note for note. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, and they also uh, get a lot of mileage on the amusing album closer, which I love. Pe people take pictures of each other. Uh, to prove that they really existed. 
Yes. Very, you, very, you cannot get a better lyric than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty charming. It's, it's a, a, like, you know, Davies at his best, his dry sense of humor was, was off the charts. So uh, the band here, they employ music hall, folk, and blues to honor other crackling memories they bring to the forefront on the album. Uh, there's the chugging, pun intended, rhythms of Last of the Steam Power Trains. Uh, there's the lovely, gentle sway of Sitting by the Riverside. There's the beautiful country-tinged melody of Animal Farm. Seriously, that, that's another one of the best songs on the record. And then there's the aching longing of the harpsichord-driven Village Green, uh, it should be noted that there are two songs on this record. There's Village Green Preservation Society, which is the uh, lead track, and then Village Green, which is a which is a two minute lovely ballad, which actually dates back to 1966, and kind of birthed the concept uh, then that they shelved until they recorded this record. Davies truly missed the simple people of that Village Green and hated those new American tourists, which he makes clear in the lyrics to, to Village Green. Uh, now, Village Green Preservation Society cemented the King's status as a cult band. Uh, by this point, they weren't really selling records. They, they were a long uh, way away from You Really Got Me. Uh, and something they enjoy in spades still today. Theirs was a fiercely intelligent, yes, yet gorgeous cult that, inspires, that, that really inspired numerous bands that followed, most notably Blur in the 1990s, who yeah. did some incredibly kinkish uh, records that uh, stand among that decade's best uh, uh, best volleys. Englishness was never cooler than it was in the hands of Ray and Dave Davies, and Englishness has never been as cool since. Arturo, what do you say? Yeah, Ray Davies was a sociologist. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Um, that guy really got into the minds, the collective mind of a populace, and the fears and the anxieties and the doubts and the love and the hatred and everything. And just, he really got into people's minds. I mean, he, he wrote the most brilliant character vignettes. You know, they, 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 they were short. His, a lot of his songs were character-driven short stories and that told so much more of a story than just what the character was going through. It started with the character story, but it told a bigger story of the plight and the overall just existential dread of a society yep. that is see that, that 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 was seeing their world disappear. Yes. Um we don't have a Ray Davies right now in our world in 2024. We really need that. Yeah. And, uh, um it, it's 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 we don't have that poetic voice in music or even in pop music. We don't have that. Yeah, well, everyone, I mean every, everyone we got to stay young forever. Ray Davies is like, no, dude, we're not going to be young forever. We're all going to die, and everything's yeah. I mean, I mean, you have some. Lives. I mean, you have some pretty insightful people. I mean, you've got uh, Adrienne uh, Lanker is pretty good. Uh, yeah, but 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 she she yeah. she's I love her, but she's but she doesn't do that though. She's no, like, especially on her last album, she's all tripped out and psychedelic in her lyrics. Yeah, she's not really a chronicler, uh, is she? I mean, so you know, you you have some folks, but there's nobody under fifty years old. Uh, let's just put it this way: that that that. Yeah that carries that mantle. I mean, most of these people are still alive, although uh, recent photos of Ray Davies makes it look like he's pretty frail. He might, he might be at his, at his end, but you know, but you've got, you know, your, your people like Tweedy who's, who's capable of it and, and yeah. books, but nobody under 50 uh, right. has, has the magic of, of the Ray Davies. And yeah, he, he was, uh, he, he was just like devastating because he could get like a pop song 
uh, that was like a, a basically he could make you rock out to like a big, a real high concept joke, especially I think of late seventies and, um, uh, early eighties, uh, uh, kinks, especially the songs low budget and come dancing, which yeah. are t- two of the funniest songs of all time because yeah. nobody really, they're got... also, but they're also really sad. Those are some sad yeah. songs. Too. Yeah. They're, they're, they're sad, but they're, they're funny, but sad. Because yeah. and and they get away with murder because you know they did routinely because they could get like people singing la 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 to stuff that could make them like cringe, <laughs> <laughs> to, and to to make them like be scared. Uh, yeah. So you know, just really really neat trick. So uh, Ray Ray Davies uh, definitely worth celebrating. So Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. Continuing now with our run through 1968, uh, there was another artist who... uh, you know he's one regarded as one of the great white uh, soul singers of all time, and uh, if he's a traditionalist, but uh, kind of running counter to what we've been talking about the monochromatic uh, nature of '68, he decided to put in some pretty bright colors and and shapes and sounds into his record in 1968, and in the process made one of the greatest albums ever made, probably top 50 of all time. Arturo, what are we talking about? Who are we talking about? And what are we talking about? Yeah, before we discuss the music of Van Morrison's classic Astro Weeks album, the background story of how the album came about has to be discussed because it is just as interesting. In 1967, Van Morrison emerged from the ashes of Northern Irish garage rock band Them and put out the irresistible folk rock single Brown Eyed Girl, a worldwide top 10 hit. If you think... You have not heard it. No, you have. Yeah, you have. <laughs> it's one of the most enduringly timeless songs of not just the 1960s, but of the whole 20th century. That single, along with its rather hodgepodge odds and sods accompanying album, Blow In Your Mind, came out on Bang Records, an indie label owned by Burt Burns, a guy with deep mafia and gangster connections. <laughs> Remember that tidbit. It'll come up again soon. Uh, Morrison and Burns often clashed in regard to artistic direction, with Burns wanting Morrison to continue on the more commercial, poppy direction of Brown-Eyed Girl, while Morrison wanted to pursue a more esoteric path. This is indicative of the stubbornness and refusal to compromise that would go on to characterize much of Morrison's career later in the future. But anyway... Burns died of a heart attack in late December of 1967, and supposedly his widow, Eileen Burns, blamed the stress 
from uh, the conflict her husband had with Morrison on his death. <laughs> uh, this, of course, is according to Morrison's then-wife, uh, Janet Rigsby, who uh, went on record with this uh, uh, information in various interviews. As the widow, Mrs. Burns, inherited all of Bang Records' contracts, and while Morrison immediately wanted out of the deal right after Burt Burns died, the widow refused to let him go, not only keeping him away from the recording studio, but also blocking him from performing at any New York City clubs, uh, threatening wow. many clubs with reprisals. Remember, they did have gangster connections. Uh, Morrison then moved with his wife to Boston, and started playing at clubs in in the Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts areas. With a small band in an uh, all-acoustic setting, he played a combination of both them songs as well as songs from his Blowing Your Mind album. However, he also started to play embryonic versions of the songs that would eventually appear on Astro Weeks. Word started to spread in music industry circles about the guy who did Brown Eyed Girl playing this new kind of folk music in clubs around Boston. Louis Merenstein, a producer and occasional A&R scout for Warner Brothers, was asked to check Morrison out. He was enthralled and entranced by what he heard and expressed keen interest in signing him. Uh, his business partner, uh, Bob Schwade, who also worked for Warner's Publishing, started working to get Morrison out of his contract with Bang Records. Bang and Eileen Burns in particular were stubborn and wouldn't give Morrison up easily. The first condition for letting Mor Morrison record for Warner Brothers was that Morrison had to write and submit to Web 4, Roman numeral 4, music, the deceased Burt Burns' publishing company, three songs per month for the next year. Morrison agreed to it by going to the studio to record exactly 36 nonsensical gibberish songs in a single session and submitted them. Uh, the second condition was that Morrison had to give Web4 Music half of the publishing slash copyright to any original song he would release as a single within one year from September 1968. Morrison and Warner Brothers dealt with this by not releasing any singles throughout this, uh, this time and none from the Astro Weeks album. The third and final condition was that Morrison had to include on his next album two songs that he had already recorded for Bang Records. These songs ended up being Madam George and Beside You, although the versions that appear on Astral Weeks are completely reworked versions of what are in the Bang catalog. Nevertheless, at one point shortly before the release of Astral Weeks, Warner Brothers executive Joe Smith wanted to completely and totally take Morrison off Bang Records' hands and offered to buy out his contract. Remember what I said earlier about Bang Records and their mafia connections? Well, the famous comedian Don Rickles had a manager called Joe Scandori. Scandori was employed by Bang to be the intermediary in this exchange with Joe Smith. Scandori was notorious for being a very connected man, quote-unquote. According to Smith, they met at an abandoned warehouse where Smith carried a bag with $20,000 in cash, and Scandori had four tall, heavily built men by his side. 
The exchange was made and Smith quickly exited the building. When asked uh, in future in a future interview if he would ever see these men again, Smith succinctly said, quote, no, they were not in the music business, end quote. <laughs> now, <laughs> what, a, <laughs> what about the music on Astro Weeks? Frankly, back then and until now, it is an album that defies easy characterization. Is it folk music? Is it mystic Celtic music? Is it jazz? Is it jazz folk? Is it an utterly new subgenre of rock being born? Well, it is all of the above. It's also one of the most fascinating, awe-inspiring, deeply emotional, and perhaps even spiritual musical recordings of the 20th century. Acoustic guitars, cellos, flutes, brushing drums, and stand-up bass riffs sashay in and out of the mix in an intoxicating blend of songs of deeply impressionistic and stream-of-consciousness lyrics and image fragments ruminating on youth, lost innocence, and a romantic yearning for something that's just beyond one's grasp. The title track goes straight for your gut with a soaring melody, a sloping lead guitar, uh, lead guitar job and work, and vibrating cello that's nothing short of spellbinding. A weepy harpsichord gliding flute, plaintive string section, and a complaintive string section combined to provide Cypress Avenue with an emotional counterpoint to Morrison's vocals and lyrics that evoke the innocence of youth in the most painfully romantic manner possible. And has there ever been a more lyrically elusive song that still resonates with unspeakable sadness and heartstring pulling than Madame George? Many people have claimed that it's about a broken-hearted drag queen, but Morrison himself in several interviews has refuted this, saying the, the character is a composite of six or seven different people. Well, you know, Morrison does sing at one point in the song, quote, in the corner playing dominoes in drag, the one and only Madam George, end quote. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway. Yeah, I was going to say. The, <laughs> the song does contain several allusions to the city of Belfast itself, with Cypress Avenue itself mentioned along with the bridge the, that crosses the River Boyne and the deeply Protestant Sandy Row area of the city. All of this adds up to an abstract short film that Morrison is painting, as he does in all the songs on this album, of a romanticized vision of a world he wants to either live in or has lived in and made all the more tragic by the fact that this ideal can never be attained. In the end, the lyrical details don't matter as much, really, as the emotional impact and wallop that the entire album contains. It's one of the most singular, affecting albums in the history of recorded music, an album that to this day casts a long shadow over so much of Van Morrison's uh, incredibly prolific career. Chris? Yeah, this has to be like just about the most geniusly arranged record in rock and roll history. I think just... Uh... There's nothing. There's nothing else like it. Uh, you know, they they hit on a combination of of instruments and tones, and uh, volumes and voices and and just everything. It just just it's just beautiful and it's just it's mysterious. It's a it's a genuinely mysterious, haunting uh, listen. And uh, I will say this. Uh, I think you taught me this one time that uh, uh, you want to you you want to do a green test with an album. Do it with this one. 
Yeah. Uh, especially because the, the, the bass playing on this record is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of the best, uh, most subtle uh, bass lines, especially on Sweet Thing. Uh, the bass line on Sweet Thing is just masterful. And uh, it just shows how much of an artist uh, Van Morrison really was. Because if you want to uh, do a, a study and you contrast this record, uh, 1968's Astral Weeks, with 1970's Moondance. Because uh, Moondance is one of the most, uh, is one of the best straightforward soft pop rock records ever made. Uh, yeah. it, that's another one of those uh, top 200 records. And because, you know, it's got, uh, and, and it's Stone Me and uh, uh, Moondance is on it and Crazy Love, which, you know, is simple, but you know, it, it's just genius in its simplicity. And, but it, it's all, it's all accessible. It's all simple. It's all, sing song sing sing songable and it's it, it's not dense and then you have this record which is which is poetry on four legs <laughs> at, at least four legs it might actually be more like eight legs it might be like a it might be poetry as an octopus yeah. uh in in its complexity and its uh in its scope in the the literature of its music of, of its ambitions. And so for Morrison to have two of the best kinds of records, uh, that, you know, this kind of record, and then the kind of record that moon dance is for him to have two of the best, those of those kinds of records in the same catalog, uh, shows you that, you know, Morrison and, and it's too bad. Morrison's kind of uh, become in the, he's kind of in the same category as a Clapton now, uh, because of his anti-vax status and just his, his, his crazy, uh, politics and just he's 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 come a, he's he's now become kind of a model for toxic white guy uh yeah. here in the covid era in the 2020s which is too bad because the guy is a stone cold genius or was a stone cold genius and uh, deserves to be uh, celebrated and revered especially for astral weeks uh i top 50 might actually be underplaying it top 25 Mm, wow, I, I would put I would put it that high, which, you know, obviously, the longer we go along, the harder it is to kind of distill things down to a 25. Uh, I yeah. still think Astro Weeks belongs in the 25. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I think it maintains that position. Well, all right. So next, now we're going to do a uh, bullet ish round. Yes. Uh, what a year for big, bloated, indulgent, but still brilliant albums. Yes. Uh, a lot of these records that came out. You know, the bigger, heavier, more psychedelic, just, you know, hit you in the face stuff. A lot of that came out in 1968. And a lot of them were really great and still hold up. The first one that we're going to go through as quickly as we can. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland. By the time 1968 was in full swing, Jimi Hendrix was a superstar. His two visionary albums from the previous year catapulted him to worldwide fame, not just on a commercial level, but on an artistic level. He was expanding the parameters of and recreating what one can do with the electric guitar, while at the same time creating new subgenres of rock. Mm -hmm. Chaz Chandler, the former Animals bassist who discovered him and produced those first two albums, was on board to produce this one as well. But by this time, Hendrix had felt emboldened and sought more creative uh, freedom. Always a perfectionist, Hendrix became increasingly adamant about performing repeated take after repeated take, frustrating his bandmates and Chandler, uh, Chas Chandler in particular. 
Another problem going on with Hendrix in the studio was his penchant for inviting friends, hangers-on, and groupies to convene and hang out in the studio, <laughs> transforming what would normally be a professional recording session into all night an all-night party. You know? yep. uh, Chandler, who provided discipline and diligence to the recording sessions for the previous albums, eventually grew frustrated with the proceedings and quit altogether, leaving Hendrix to produce the whole thing himself. Uh, the result was the sprawling double album Electric Ladyland, released in October of 1968. There are some spots where it does get bloated and indulgent, especially the soupy, shapeless, formless 1983 suite on disc two and the awkward, underdeveloped burning of the midnight lamp. But there are enough brilliant and inspired moments to warrant the record's double album length. Hendrix veered ever closer to contemporary, for the time, R&B and funk with Crosstown Traffic, Long Hot Summer Night, and Come On. Uh, Have You Ever Been to Electric Ladyland is a wonderful homage to Curtis Mayfield and The Impressions. Uh, there are two versions of Voodoo Child here. The first one is a lengthy live-in-the-studio jam featuring Steve Winwood on keyboards, which proves that away from the guitar pyrotechnics and showmanship, Hendrix could play straight-ahead blues as well as or better than anyone. The second version is the more famous one, with one of the greatest, most iconic intro and guitar riffs of all time, kicking off a celestial slice of sludgy blues rock. And, of course, there's Hendrix's majestic version of Bob Dylan's uh, All Along the Watchtower, the highest-ranking Hendrix single to hit the U.S. Billboard pop chart, peaking at number 20. It's also one of the most licensed rock songs of all time. Oh, yeah. Appearing in countless TV shows as well as movies such Forrest as Forrest Gump, Gump Watchmen, yeah. A Bronx Tale, and Rush. Uh, I won't describe it because, trust me, you've all heard it. Yes. <laughs> Needless to say, <laughs> uh, beyond, beyond being the greatest Dylan cover of all time, it's the only Dylan cover to be universally recognized as the, the definitive version of the song itself. Even Dylan himself has been quoted as saying that whenever he plays the song live, it's done as an homage to Hendrix. Uh, in Rolling Stone Magazine's most recent list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, Electric Ladyland came in at number 53. While I admit that it's way, way too high of a ranking, the album is a classic and is a sterling example of the bigger, heavier, more psychedelic and exploratory side of 1968. Chris? Uh, I actually don't think that that's uh, too high. I, I think that this is Hendrix's best record. To your point earlier about how a lot of artists... Uh, you know, their double albums tend to be the best thing or the the most uh, notable thing that they've done, and it shouldn't be dismissed. Well, I think that this is uh, it, it's not it's not Exhibit A. It's more like Exhibit G, but <laughs> it's still uh, it's still up there to me. I mean, I think that the sprawl for me works. I think it, it you know Hendrix opening his mind and you know him as a producer and you know kind of him without without as many shackles on is just sort of a it's a fascinating ride uh you stole my trivia note by the way i was going to mention yeah. steve stevie winwood on organ so you know yeah. boo uh <laughs> but you know just think about it that this album came out about a year and a half after are you experienced from 67 mm -hmm. and in the span of a year and a half and three albums where hendrix was for Electric Ladyland and from where he started. And yeah. mind you, where he started was pretty fucking great. 
Uh, you know, you know, obviously I, I wouldn't be surprised if I can't remember, but are you experienced might actually be higher on that, uh, on that mm -hmm. list than, uh, than the 53 for electric lady land, but it's, it is. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it's there, but, uh, uh, so the, the, the distance that he traveled and then not only that, but then, you know, like uh, new rays of the rising sun, uh, which was the, the album he was working on when he died. I and mean, he was heading in a more funk direction. He was uh, getting closer to uh, Curtis Mayfield, yeah. uh, than, than anybody else uh, was. And so the directions that Hendrix, uh, Hendrix in, uh, in getting more exploratory was starting to, uh, explore the black music side of his influences. Right, which were always there, but as as, as he went along and as he matured, uh, uh, you know, his explorations got blacker uh, in 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 nature, and especially you know, like the band of Gypsies, when he actually had an, a, a, the black backing band, and he was so it just it's indicative of this is where he was probably going to leave the psychedelic behind, and he was going to get more uh, into the funk and into the soul and into the you know in the, the sort of the you know Dolly Dagger kind of stuff. Uh, you know, then uh, Easy Rider, uh, you know, those those two songs, especially, I think were kind of indicative of the direction he was he was going to go in. Uh, so it's, it's just, you know, in a way, it makes this record kind of sad because it's amazing, but it's like, oh, what could have been? Oh, what could have been? Yeah. You know, it could have been even better. It could have gone even further into the vanguard than this, which right. is an extraordinary thing to think about. So uh, good great great record great record it, it it deserves its 53 place on that list all right next cream's wheels of fire now the other rock guitar virtuoso that was sitting on top of the world pun very much intended hey, yes in 1968 was eric clapton and his band cream like hendrix they also pioneered a proto metal sound with a unique sound of clapton wailing away with his bluesy guitar while the rhythm section of bassist Jack Bruce and drummer Ginger Baker, both with jazz backgrounds, uh, they would complement Clapton with innovative and inventive, yet still heavy as shit, rhythms. After Sunshine of Your Love was a worldwide smash hit in late 1967, Cream immediately got to working on and took considerably more time with uh, the follow-up album to the classic Disraeli Gears. From the very beginning, the album that became Wheels of Fire was planned to be a double album, the first one being all new studio recordings and the second one being live material from recorded concerts. As far as the material goes, if disc one were all that was to Wheels of Fire, one could argue that it would have been Cream's very best album. Uh, the band members may have not been getting along due to personality conflicts, but whatever the case, the music on disc one of Wheels of Fire is, well, to use Gen Z parlance, fire. <laughs> uh, you, have, you have White Room, one of the band's signature songs and another worldwide hit single. It's proto-metal at its finest, exhibiting high drama, heavy guitar riffage, soft, aggressive dynamics, and sublimely psychedelic lyrics by the band's some, uh, sometime contributing lyricist, Pete Brown. You have Politician, a dark, lumbering, menacing yeah. piece of heavy blues with a tricky time signature that could even pass as proto-grunge. Uh, at some point in the future, the young members of Soundgarden were listening. To 
Um, you have those were the days and deserted cities of the heart, shining examples of Cream's gift for combining hard rock with fluid melodicism. The second disc, the live one, is less interesting. Toad is just a glorified, boring 16-minute drum solo by Ginger Baker. Uh, Train Time is just a glorified, boring 7-minute harmonica solo by Jack Bruce. However, disc 2 does have a blistering cover of Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues, titled Crossroads. And uh, in this track, Clapton proved he's one of the greatest guitarists who ever lived. Uh, this live version has, through the years, become the definitive version of the song. Yet another double album that justifies its length, for the most part. Yet another album that exemplifies the heavier, bigger side of rock in 1968. Chris? Yeah, White, White Room is like the one Clapton-ish song that Martin Scorsese has not appropriated for one of his movies, as far <laughs> as I know. So thank goodness, because that song still rocks balls, even after I've heard it at least a thousand times in my lifetime. It's one of the great uh, rock songs of that era or, or any era. And like you said, it's just it's just neat. Uh, you know, it's uh, like just weird lyrics. You know, it's 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 not Swallowbar level weird, but it's pretty <laughs> weird. Uh, and I actually don't mind the live disc because the live disc is just like it's it's pure showing off. Yeah. You know, Crossroads even you know with with that guitar solo is kind of showing off in its own way. But like you said, with all the soloing and all that, it's a very show offy. You know, I can just imagine that Cream must have been like one of the hottest tickets in live music yeah. at that time they you know they, they must have been fun to experience live because you know it was it was pretty wild uh and so yeah you're right i mean 16 minutes is a little much <laughs> you know yeah. I, that, that probably would, in seven minutes of harmonica is even worse uh <laughs> if you think about it but it's still pretty exciting to see what what they were capable of uh there so uh wheels of fire not quite as good as israeli gears uh but pretty damn good a bluesier for sure i think it, it you know yeah. i think that the, the blues end uh is definitely more pronounced uh on this record and uh and and especially the guitar the guitar is more orthodox you don't get that kazoo shit uh, yeah. <laughs> that, which I love. Uh, that that's my that my, my favorite part of this really years is how the uh, Clapton somehow gets a kazoo sound out of his mm -hmm. guitar in a lot of spots. So anyway, there there you go. Wheels of Fire, great album. All right, next, the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat. On an episode a few years ago, I talked at length about the Velvet Underground's second album and how it is, as I alluded to in my parameter setter for this episode. Noise rock taken to the extreme, a gigantic slice of nihilistic, angry punk rock aggression that was way ahead of its time. On the last episode of this series, while discussing the VU's vastly influential debut album, I touched on the unbelievable number of rock subgenres that this band launched from punk to indie to alternative to goth to shoegaze and to all places in between. I won't go into it too much because I've done so already, but White Light, White Heat, the band's last album featuring bassist, keyboardist, viola player John Cale, is more than just being a proto-everything album and a platform for Lou Reed's and Sterling Morrison's decibel-busting, ear-bleeding, raging guitar noise attack that influenced countless bands in the indie alternative spectrum. It's also about the songwriting and the daring, frankly shocking subject matter in the lyrics. 
from Lady Godiva's operation story about a sex change operation gone wrong to the gifts tale about a man who delivers himself in a box to the object of his affection <laughs> only to have his skull crushed by a drill gun after she nice. tries to open it to Sister Ray's story of a heroin-fueled sex orgy between a group of drag queens and sailors where somebody dies and ends up in the cop ends up in the cops breaking everything up one cannot ignore the dark humor <laughs> in Lou Reed's songs yeah ain't love uh, grant uh there's also the lingering intelligence and keen eye for description and detail that puts the listener right there in the center of events Quite possibly rock music's most literary-minded songwriter, uh, this album finds Lou Reed at his most lyrically demented and at his most musically explosive. It may not be objectively their best album, but it's probably my favorite. Chris? Yeah. Ain't love, Grant. Uh, <laughs> that's what you could say about the lyrics. Yeah, uh, when I was 19, uh, you actually, uh, we go back 30 plus years now, uh, you actually introduced me to this record and my first reaction is what the fuck is this shit uh, <laughs> I, I hated it and just I, I kind of avoided it for a long time but uh as i've gotten older i've appreciated it now and i think you know it you know the the dissonance is purposeful and actually in in a odd way kind of beautiful yeah uh, in terms of how it's shaped and so it is magnificent no noise it certainly has grown on me uh, over over the years, and uh, yeah, the title track is is one of the strongest of the uh, VU songs in their entire catalog. Uh, yeah. I, I dig it. Yeah. All right. Next. Uh, well, here we go. Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa's most experimental, far out there music came during the 1960s, and nowhere was it more on the edge than in 1968's "We're Only in It for the Money." Along with the Velvet Underground, Zappa's band, the Mothers of Invention, were at the foremost uh, of postmodern music in the rock and roll vernacular, that is, merging the avant-garde with popular music. Uh, like the VU's John Cale, Zappa had the classically trained background to know what he was doing in regard to construction and deconstruction. Uh, to some ears, it may have, and probably still does, uh, sounded like noise, but on We're Only In It For The Money, Zappa created a dizzying tornado of tape loops, feedback, backwards side, uh, side effects, uh, backwards noise effects, recorded conversations, and actual band interplay that rivaled and resembled the work of extremist composers such as Karl Heinz Stockhausen and John Cage. Unlike many of the postmodern composers of the 1950s and early 1960s, Zappa's brand of rock-based avant-gardism was injected with grand doses of humor and satire. Uh, um, the entire album is a fairly loose, conceptual, thematic album that spoofs the hippie counterculture yeah. movement at the time. And uh, pretty savagely, and at that, <laughs> as evident by the album title. Uh, then there's the album cover, a direct spoof of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album cover. Uh, the first half of the album is where the majority of Zappa's bile lies. But in the second half of the record, Zappa starts to show a bit more of a soft heart, something he would show less of uh, in ensuing years. Uh, lyrically, he starts to show sympathy for the lost wayward kids of the hippie era, putting the blame on a generation of parents too occupied with their shallow, vapid, selfish, consumerist lifestyle. Uh, you see this in tracks like Lonely Little Girl and What's the Ugliest Part of Your Body. 
Mm. Unfortunately, on tracks like Harry, You're a Beast, he also tends to point that anger in a misogynist way toward women in general. Really? Yeah, really? Some, yeah, no. Something that, uh, along with the toilet humor he would indulge in from the mid-1970s onward, would go on to form an unfortunate black mark uh, in the man's musical legacy. However, taken as a whole, what at the time Frank Zappa's uh, was Frank Zappa's magnum opus with the Mothers of Invention, the first iteration of his career, uh, this is it, it's dense, musically challenging, audience-confronting, thought-provoking, it is a masterpiece of conceptual pop art that has, for the most part, stood the test of time for its audacity and forward-thinking approach to music composition. Chris? Yeah, uh, deliciously snotty record. Uh, yeah. It, it, e e even the, uh, the quote-unquote tender stuff is pr still pretty snotty. Uh, who Needs the Peace Corps? Simply one of the funniest songs ever recorded. I mean, just a, a wonderful goof on the San Francisco scene, and it 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 even actually kind of goofs on the dead as well, and kind of yeah. points to it the, the incestuous music scene uh, there, and so uh, really, really, really funny, uh, brilliantly funny, and so uh, Zappa was capable of that. I mean, he's got these funny concept records that run throughout his uh, his catalog. Uh, this is the least crude of those, but yeah. also might be the most incisive. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, he's, you know, his famous ones are apostrophe, Sheik your booty and Joe's garage, yeah. uh, you know, apostrophe has got, you know, and overnight sensation actually is a, an accompanying of that. That's got some pretty incisive stuff and some pr pretty bright stuff too. In right. addition to some like really, you know, duty toilet, you know, uh, you know, misogynist stuff as well. But, uh, but this one, it's as least crude and it, it, it's, it's, it's a sophisticated record. It's a sophisticated satire. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I would say is, is the best way, uh, to put it. And it, it's, it's a fun listen. It's a short record too. It's, it's really only, it's like, I think it was like 32 minutes or something. It just, oh, it's just pushing 40. Oh, okay. But it, it, it flies by, uh, it, yeah. because it's, it's like 19 songs. That's right. It's like 19 songs, 39 minutes. Uh, so it flies by and, uh, again, just really, really funny and really, really bright but deliciously, deliciously snotty as well. What is not snotty is the next album. <laughs> yep. It's the Grateful Dead's Anthem of the Sun, speaking of the dead. Uh, we covered this album in detail in the first part of our two-part series from a couple of years ago, The Grateful Dead in the Studio, A Legacy. Needless to say, this is the absolute peak of the dead's experimental tendencies, and those tendencies resulted in the most overtly psychedelic and really the the most outright weirdest record in the band's entire studio discography. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a part studio, part live album, but nowhere near similar to Cream's Wheels of Fire. On this record, each song is stitched together from recording, recordings called from sessions from five different studios and from six different live shows. <laughs> uh, it's truly a madcap, mad scientist approach to record making. And yes, only a band as off the rails on drugs as the dead were at the time would attempt to do something like this. Um, here's the thing, though. It really works, <laughs> and it feels like a cohesive, coherent record, or at least a cohesive performance. That is, of course, if you can get past the sloppy edits that mark the transition from studio track to live track, as you get with the opening track, uh, that's it for the, for the other one. Uh, 
A lot of the greatness of this album is due to Jerry Garcia's scorching guitar work and oh, yeah. thundering complementary rhythms of uh, uh, dual drummers Bill Kreutzmann and Mickey Hart. But boy, was it a hell of a time getting there. Uh, the nominal yep. producer of this record, uh, David Hassinger or Hassinger, uh, quit a third of the way through be, through because of the band's constant drug use and even more constant uh, determination to experiment. The last straw for him was reportedly when guitarist Bob Weir wanted to create the illusion of thick air by mixing recordings of silence taken in the desert and the city. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the band's touring soundman, Dan Healy, was brought in to co-produce the rest of the album with the dead themselves. Uh, this is the point in the album's creation when the band went on the road to properly road test the material, uh, record the performances and bring the tapes in and splice them in with their favorite parts together from the studio. And you, you get what you get here. Uh, Kreutzmann probably has the best explana explanation for the dead's modus operandi in an expert uh, from the book Deal in 2015. Quote, Phil and Jerry were the ones who figured out that we could exploit studio technology to demonstrate how these songs were mirrors of infinity, even when they adhered to their established arrangements. It's the old paradox of improvisational compositions. compositions. Jazz artists know all about the balance between freedom and structure, but a few rock bands were now catching on. Most rock bands, however, tended to head in in an opposite direction, afraid of the uncertainty of improvisation. We decided that Anthem of the Sun was going to be our statement on the matter. End quote. He would further explain, quote, Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh went into the studio with Dan Healy and like mad scientists, they started splicing all the versions together, creating hybrids that contain the studio tracks and various live parts stitched together from different shows all in the same song. One rendition would dissolve into another and sometimes they were even stacked on top of each other. It was easily our most experimental record. It was groundbreaking in its time and it remains a psychedelic listening experience to this day, end quote. And he was damn right about that. Chris? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, my line about this record, and I've said it a couple of times in the history of this podcast. I mean, I covered this uh, in our old vault segment in one of our first episodes, is that it's like a basically it's the equivalent of a, sh a shattered stained glass church window. Yeah. Where you have all these wonderful pieces and, you know, some of them are small and insignificant, but some of them like basically you have like the Jesus head with the sun coming through it. In, in a couple of spots, like, you know, the end of the record with some of the, you know, the the the, the fifth track, which is just the, the sort of the spooky uh, where Garcia gets really spooky and yeah. starts coming up with all kinds of like weird feedback uh, noise. But it's gorgeous uh, right. in its own in its own way. It, it's it's haunting and gorgeous. Uh, and you get some of that. You get uh, some of the uh, the double drum uh, solo bits like the one on Alligator. Uh, between right. Hart and, and Kreutzmann. And so you, you take all these pieces and it's earwormy as hell and you admire it. And it's just, it's a, a really adventuresome listen. Uh, don't come for the songs. Uh, you know, there, there, yeah. you know, there's, there's pieces of songs like, you know, it's all for the, uh, for the other one, I think it's called. It's the, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah, it for the other one. 
yeah, that's it for the other one. That's that's about the first half of that is about the only thing that counts as a song <laughs> on the record. Although Alligator, I suppose, is okay. That's got a Shel Silverstein lyric in it, by the way. Uh, and it's Pigpen and, and Shel Silverstein, probably the least likely duo of of co lyricists of all time. <laughs> uh, so again, just think of a just picture a pile of stained glass uh, church window pieces, and that's Anthem of the Sun. There you yeah. go. And that brings us to our final uh, whacked out album of 1968, The Pretty Things SF Sorrow. Now, when The Pretty Things emerged in the so-called British beat scene in 1964, they were considered the B team to the Rolling Stones A team. Another yeah. group of middle class white English boys who played African-American yeah. blues and R&B. Even though one of their founders was an original member of the Stones. Right. While they would forever be in the shadow of bands such as the Stones, the Who, and the Kinks, they were a better band than the also-ran status that they were tagged with. Garage rock classics such as 1965's Buzz the Jerk and 1966's uh, Midnight to Six Man were testaments to the nasty, almost punky edge that the band had. Like a lot of bands of that era, they got psychedelic in the middle of the decade, uh, but the singles they put out were superb and full of sonic invention, full of that, full of exotic arrangements and unconventional song structures. Defecting Gray from 1967 and Walking Through My Dreams, great song title, from mm -hmm. 1968, uh, were not just brilliant nuggets of righteous psychedelia. They also demonstrated the band's knack for heavy riff rock that predated the direction many other bands would take in the future. Uh, then the Pretty Things decided to get conceptual. If a rock opera slash concept album that tracks the life of a man from birth through troubled childhood, through exploratory adolescence, in search for enlightenment, through finding a transcendence sounds familiar, it should. That's mm -hmm. basically the story of the Who's legendary concept album, Tommy, from one year later in 1969. It's always a point of contention as to whether the Who actually stole the idea from the pretty things. Members of the critic of the music critic field, as well as uh, the band members themselves, have, have uh, ascertained that the album SF Sorrow was a profound influence on Tommy, while members of The Who have always unequivocally denied it. What we do know for sure is that the music on SF Sorrow finds the pretty things at the midway point between mind-blowing psychedelic rock and the super heavy riff rock that bands such as Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and even The Who would indulge in uh, about a year later. It's one of the truly most underrated albums of this psychedelic era. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Really, really, really innovative psychedelia. So you you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You've got the coloring books of the Beatles and the Pink Floyds of the yeah. world uh, mixed with the Who and Deep Purple and that kind of that kind yeah. of riff-heavy chug-a-lugga uh, yeah. type, type of rock. And you put them together and you subdue it. Uh, yeah. I think it, it's, it's, it's rhythmic, it's catchy, and it's propulsive, but it's subdued. And so it, it's a very singular record, uh, SF yeah. Sorrow, because of that. And uh, one one line that I'll I'll give you uh, is that balloon burning, uh, and a, mm. they, I I have a tough time pronouncing that word balloon, as in like hot air balloon burning. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like can five years before can does. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's it's got a little bit of motorique or, or kind of pre motorique uh, rhythm going on, and so. 
uh, they were they 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 had chops. And like I said, one of their founding members was actually uh, for about a month <laughs> or right. two months was in the Rolling Stones when when Richards and uh, Jagger were first uh, kicking around in art school uh with it so uh these guys were good they never broke uh they were treated like step stepchildren and they actually from what i've read they uh, they had to make a living doing uh doing tv music and sort mm -hmm. of uh jingles it was jingles and, and tv soundtrack music they originally they eventually they released and i can't remember what they titled it but they released a series of albums that kind of compiled all of that stuff, which is like wow. really weird, fun shtick. Yeah. Uh, and they did that uh, throughout the seventies and, and early eighties. And so they're, they're one of those, one, one of rock's great, what could have been's, uh, right. you know, this album probably deserved more of an audience than it got. And, you know, I, I, ironically, from what I've read, by the time it reached the shores of the U S it was after Tommy had hit. And yeah. so now, now everybody's calling them Tommy ripoffs. Right. As, as opposed to the other way around. Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the Tommy is a much better record. Uh, nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to say F SF Sorrow is better than Tommy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you're right. The, the, the coincidences as far as the uh, as, as, as far as the Messiah, you know, the, the, the modern day Messiah trope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty hard to ignore. So. Uh, yeah, good, good record. Uh, just, you know, just a, a weird mix of things, but innovative and cool and uh, no sorrow in SF sorrow and no SF, by the way, does not stand for San Francisco. <laughs> All right. And we're done with 1968. So, and so, yeah. And so on a closing note, Arturo, how would you encapsulate the themes, tie it all together, the themes of what we just went through with all these wonderful albums? Very simple dichotomy, you know, the, the the dichotomy of bigness versus going back to the roots. Uh, we talked about the kinks, birds, and the band, and, you know, them uh, going back to simplicity. Uh, we have all these other, you know, the opposite, you know, big, heavier, more psychedelic of the albums we just mentioned. And then all of that in the same record with the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and I think all of it, including the White Album, it really is a response to 66 and 67, where you had the psychedelic explosion and sort of the more experimental and, and things just blowing up like again in, in Technicolor. Well, where, do you, well, what's next? And so right. either, either you dial it up even further, or try to figure out what the next step is, or you tune it or you tone it down. Right. And, and so I think that there, that's where you get that divergence is because everybody's trying to, you know, I think that by that, by that point, there's a little bit of uh, uh, flower power fatigue, yeah. That's going on, obviously, with Frank Zappa, uh, you know, sort of capturing that beautifully with his satire. Mm. Uh, and we're only in it for the money. But it's just uh, everybody's trying to figure out, OK, uh, uh, where do we go from here and how should we proceed? And so that's where you get this divergence. And it's 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 fascinating. I think right. 60, 68 is a, is a fascinating year. And I think it's because of the context that 66 and 67 provide sure. for yeah. sure. So and with that, folks. Like we always do at the end of these episodes, please, please, please go and join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. You know, Facebook's got its pluses and minuses, but community is one of those pluses, and our community is as alive and well. Uh, we've had some participation up there. Arturo, uh, what's coming next? 06? 2006. Yep, 06. Studio, is studio albums of 2006. Coming yes, soon. so that, that's a studio album. So we've been doing that for almost a year now, maybe even over a year. Uh, with with these lists so we're, we're we're getting there and find us there at facebook.com 
slash group slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, if you have anything to say about uh, 1968 or anything else, if you still have lingering uh, feelings about our, our last episode on hip hop, uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And uh, as, a, as a new service, we are now compiling the uh, Spotify playlists that we promise and often put together, and we're publishing them along with the episodes. So wherever you are accessing this podcast, be sure to uh, check out the description and find the link to find uh, the, uh, us on Spotify. We're actually going to put the entire White Album in that playlist, so we're going nice. to do you a service uh, there. Uh, a nice a nice end around uh, on, on my subscription dollars 